I invite you to turn in the Word of God to the Gospel of Mark, to Mark chapter 3. This morning we are continuing our series as we work through this Gospel, and we come to the last section of what I have previously described as a thematic sandwich. And the portion which remains is in verses 28 through 30, which concerns something that the Bible describes as blasphemy or sin against the Holy Spirit. Look with me at the word, verses 28 through 30, Jesus speaking. Let's give attention to the word of the Lord. Truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. Let's ask the Lord to bless the word and to preserve us from misunderstanding. Father in heaven, we appeal to you, even as we have expressed in song, we now express by these words our desire for you to lead us into truth and away from unbelief. We ask not only for ourselves, but for the whole congregation you've gathered, that you would please, in mercy, soften hearts, incline us to believe and to respond appropriately. Preserve us and all others, we pray, from the very thing described in this passage. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus' teaching in this text brings us into a realm of knowledge that is probably not very often studied. It's a realm of knowledge called hamartiology. Not a word we often say, but one that we are instinctually familiar with because that's the doctrine, the study of sin. And we all know too much by experience about sin. But the Bible reveals and clarifies to us God's view of human sin. And essentially sin is any violation of God's will. It's any want of conformity to his perfect moral character and will for human beings. So sin extends to our actions. It's also a disposition of the heart to not agree with the Lord and to appreciate and desire and approve of the things that he desires and approves of. Now, in some ways, all sins are alike. In some ways, they're all alike. The Bible teaches, for instance, that any sin and every sin if judged strictly by God, is worthy of eternal separation from him. There is no padding that. That is what the Bible teaches. We deal with that or we live in denial. And one can wonder, how can certain sins that seem so small, the so-called white lie, how can that be worthy of eternal separation from God? And the answer is because every action or intent has to be weighed not only in view of itself, but with respect to the one that it's committed against. If somebody kicks a dog versus kicks an infant, it's the same action, but there's a greater weight to the kicking of the child who is made in the image of God. There's greater dignity, and so the sin is worse. But consider the words of the psalmist, David, inspired by the Spirit, when he says, Against you and you alone, O God, have I sinned this great sin. Only God has a law that can be violated. We all try to create our own law, right? But only one law counts, and it's the law of God. All sin is against him. And he's infinite in dignity and holiness. 
So every sin judged strictly is damnable. No sin deserves to be pardoned. On the other hand, all sins are not alike. God does distinguish between them in different ways. For instance, some sins obviously produce greater harm in the world. There's a slap and then there is murder. Sins produce different harm and also sins are committed with different degrees of responsibility. The Old Testament uses a phrase, maybe you've encountered it, speaks about high-handed sin. And that's talking about aggravated sin, premeditated sin, where you know what you're doing and you're still going to do it. And then it also describes, say, in the context of Nineveh, and they were a city of sin, that they didn't even know their moral right hand from their left hand. And God, who knows the heart and the mind and the circumstances, can take all of that into account and judge fairly in a way that you and I cannot. And that means that there will be different judgments meted out. Luke chapter 12, Jesus speaking, addresses this. Luke 12, verse 47 through 48, he says, The servant who knew his master's will, but did not get ready or act according to his will, will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much is given... Of him, much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand more. Now again, it must be underscored, the believer in Jesus Christ will not be judged and accepted on the basis of our works. And in the context, he's talking about these scribes and Pharisees who had tremendous light and yet lived contrary to the light and never did come to faith or exhibit the evidence of the Holy Spirit. But the Lord does distinguish between sins. And here in this passage, in verse 29 of Mark chapter 3, Jesus says there is a sin which is unlike any other sin. Only one sin is designated unpardonable in the Bible. And the purpose for which Jesus addresses this is in order to warn everyone who has ears to hear, everyone who feels any concern for their soul or the souls of others, to not stifle the spirit in the hour of conviction, to not suppress the work of God who convicts us concerning the gospel, or you risk, humanly speaking, an irrecoverable hardening of heart, a point of no return. I will submit to you, as we consider this, that the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is not so rare a sin as many people think it is. And therefore, on the one hand, that means you personally, if you stand outside of faith in Jesus Christ, you are being called in. On the other hand, if you are a believer here, maybe you're a person who struggles and wonders, you go back and forth, am I guilty of this? And you need to know what it really is in order that you might walk in full assurance of the faith. But then also we need to be in prayer, not per se for those who have already committed this sin. In fact, John tells us not to pray for such people that they'll be saved. And that's striking, but that's what's in Scripture. Rather, we pray for those who have not yet committed it, and only God knows the heart. We pray, God, please keep people from this. Keep our church from this. Keep our kids, our family, our spouses, our friends from this kind of hardening that we'll encounter in this text. So I acknowledge it is a heavy subject, and yet the Lord deals with it. It must be important for you to know. As we consider the 
doctrine of the unpardonable sin, we're going to do so under three main divisions. I'll announce each of them again as we come to them. They're all questions. First, what is the unpardonable sin? Second, second, why is it unpardonable? Third, how are you to respond in light of this? And so, again, we'll come to each of these. First, let's deal with, and we'll spend the majority of time on this point, what is the unpardonable sin? There are some, perhaps some here even, who suppose that the unpardonable sin is simply any sin that is unrepented. And I heard that growing up. I don't know where the idea comes from. I don't think it comes from the text itself. It just kind of floats around and sticks to people. But the idea, oh, you know, the only sin that cannot be forgiven is an unrepented sin. And there's a measure of truth there because sins which are not repented, that is, sins which are habitual and characteristic of a person, where they don't grieve them, there is no mourning, there is no striving after righteousness, those are indicative of an unregenerate person. An unrepented sin will remain an unpardoned sin. Hear what it says in 1 John 3, verse 6 and following. No one who abides in Christ keeps on sinning. And you might say, well, I've been sinning since I came to faith. I haven't skipped a day. I skip days at the gym. I skip days of eating sometimes even, but I've never missed a day of sin. Does that mean I don't know Christ? And I'd submit to you, no, what he's talking about here by keeping on is not feeling grief. And it's not merely a day or a week or a month. This is a person who is plowing on and they don't grieve their sin or strive against it. No one who abides in Christ keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Well, that means perk up your ears. There are going to be people who try to tell you, no, that they can be saved. No, they will not be. They will be damned. That's his whole point here. Do not kid yourself. I realize, and I I live in this tension too, we want to throw a bone to every person to hope for every person. And there is a sense in which we do that and only God knows the heart. But this is in scripture for a reason so that we would heed it. So that we would not kid ourselves and sit outside genuine conversion and satisfy ourselves with a pretend version of Christianity. True Christianity is supernatural. You cannot live it without the Holy Spirit. You will not want to persevere in the way of righteousness without the Holy Spirit. I'm not calling you to work in your flesh. The scripture is calling you in Jesus Christ to give evidence of the age to come. And so he says, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil, not merely to pardon our sins. He appeared to end the practice of sin. So how can we who have come to faith in Christ live at ease with our sin? At minimum, every day you take up a sword and you go to battle. You go to fight again. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. This new birth brings with it new appetites, a new nature. Just like you have a nature originally that you received from your parents, 
and you might even look a lot like them. So the new birth brings a new nature and new appetites, and it's out of those appetites that we will differently. And of course, we're immature, but there's growth. And so the Christian, in a manner of speaking, doesn't have to try to feel convicted. It's part of what we are now. We yearn to be like Christ. We hunger after him. And it says, by this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So there is a measure of truth that unrepented sin is unpardoned sin. But we have to make a distinction here. Simply because sin is unpardoned does not mean it is unpardonable. And what Jesus is dealing with is not unpardoned sin. He's dealing with unpardonable sin. Sin that cannot, under any circumstance, be pardoned. In the context here, verse 28, look, Jesus identifies it as a species, a form, a kind of blasphemy. Not only here in Mark, but even more explicitly in Matthew. It just spells it out in Matthew chapter 12. It says, anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit. So what is blasphemy? Generally speaking, blasphemy is to speak against or speak with contempt or disrespect against that which is divine, against God. To attribute to God that which is not true of him and to do so with malice. Or to attribute to creation the qualities of God and to do so in despite of the truth. Now, Specifically in our context, it's more than that. It's blasphemy against one person of the Trinity in particular. And look with me at verse 28. And you'll see this. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness. In what way had the scribes that we've been interacting with in this passage spoken against the Spirit, because they never name the Spirit directly. In fact, their doctrinal Holy Spirit is thin at best at this stage of redemptive revelation. And yet Jesus says that they are speaking against the Holy Spirit. It seems related to the fact that they, if you look in the context here, attribute Jesus' power to cast out demons to the devil. They say the power by which you're doing that is not the power of God, not the spirit of God, but you're working through the power of the devil. And so it's related to that. But now I do think it's more than that. Many people who blaspheme God do so, if you will, in ignorance, in unbelief. They don't actually believe that Jesus is God. And so when they say bad things about Jesus, they're not intending to do actual disrespect to the true God. That's not their goal. Paul was of this character. In 1 Timothy 1, verse 13, he confesses this. Before his conversion, he says, 1 Timothy 1, 13, formerly I was a blasphemer. Remember, he's hunting Christians to kill them. He certainly doesn't honor Jesus as God. He probably had all kinds of choice things to say about Jesus and said them. He says, formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. Much of the blasphemy in the world, perhaps even most of it, is spoken in ignorance, and God takes that into account. And such blasphemy, apparently, can be forgiven. But here we find, by contrast, that there are those who go further 
They blaspheme the Holy Spirit because they sin against an illumination of the Spirit that they've received. A partial illumination. Not that they've been brought to spiritual life, not that they are regenerate, but the Holy Spirit's special work in the world is this. As the ministry of the gospel goes out, it's not simply your and my word. And this is one of the great joys and hopes of evangelism, that even as we speak the words of the gospel, the Holy Spirit works too. And the Holy Spirit bears witness with the preaching of the gospel to bring inward conviction, testifying of its truthfulness. Anyone here who is converted has already experienced this. And it's easier to experience than to explain. But you find in yourself, yes, a conviction, a righteousness that cannot be from this world, convicting you about the nature of sin and judgment, who God is, who Christ is. John chapter 16, verse 18, Jesus describes the work of the Holy Spirit. He says that the Spirit convicts the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. Hebrews 6 speaks dreadfully of some people who fell away from their profession of faith. But previously it says, listen to this, they were once enlightened, having tasted the heavenly gift and shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. And that passage, understandably, has caused a lot of confusion, a lot of fear in people because they say, Isn't, does, that sounds like it's describing a person who is saved. And I'd submit to you, no, it's not talking about a person who is regenerate, but it is testifying that the Holy Spirit really does work within those who are being convicted concerning the gospel. These are people in the context of Hebrews 6 who sat in the visible church. They partook of the sacraments. They knew it was true. And then they turned away. Even so, the scribes in Mark chapter 3 know better. They not only observed Jesus doing miracles, they not only heard his teaching, but apparently the Spirit gave them enough light to know, yeah, he's a prophet. He is doing this by God. And they weren't the first to react this way. Earlier prophets in Israel's history were killed too. And why? I can only surmise. These men wanted to hold on to their positions of power. Maybe they wanted to continue living in hypocrisy and didn't want to be exposed by Jesus. Maybe they didn't want to submit to one who was not only Savior, but claimed to be Lord. But I say unto you, coming with an authority greater than Moses... Sin is profoundly petty. Judas would sell out Christ for just a little bit of silver. And so we don't have to find some enormous reason why they would suppress the work of the Spirit. The nature of man, apart from God's grace, is to resist, is to be your own God and have your own way. And it seems this is what the scribes were doing. Now, to summarize then, what is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? It is not only to hear the truth, but to have the Spirit work in you and knowledge of the truth. But then to persist in rebellion, to persist in opposition. The primary author of our Heidelberg Catechism, Zacharias Ursinus, he has a passage where he talks about this sin. I think he deals with it very clearly. Hear what he says about it. By unpardonable sin or sin against the Holy Ghost and unto death, is meant a denial of 
and a willful opposition to the acknowledged truth of God in connection with his will and works, concerning which the mind has been fully enlightened and convinced by the testimony of the Holy Ghost, all of which proceeds not from fear or infirmity, but from a determined hatred to the truth and from a heart filled with bitter malice. I wonder if such a person may stand before the judgment of God and object that they never did say a bad word about the Holy Spirit. I didn't blaspheme against the Holy Spirit. But you knew that it was the Spirit at work within you. And then you spent the remainder of your life telling yourself and telling other people that it wasn't the Spirit. It was just a phase you were going through. It was just a feeling because some persuasive person was talking. It was a bit of bad food that you ate that led to indigestion, and then you had a flirtation with religion. It's a speaking away what you know, in fact, is supernatural because it's not in our natural nature to be attracted to that which is infinitely holy and to admit we are truly in desperate need of salvation and obligated to righteousness. That conviction comes from the Holy Spirit. And such a person blasphemes the Spirit in his special ministry. When he came to them to speak to them, they did not come. They said, leave. And so we're warned in this sense that it is perhaps not so rare a sin as one would think. And it's particularly a sin that occurs among the covenant community. Not exclusively, I don't think but particularly those who have been exposed for a long time to the light. I say that perhaps to our covenant children, but also to the older members here. Frankly, it is sometimes the case that people stick with attending church because it is easier than rocking the boat and being open about their beliefs with their family. And the Holy Spirit pleases himself to warn them, but they suppress it. This brings us then to a different question The second major question, why is it unpardonable? And that's what we see in verse 28. Look with me. Whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. That is, it will follow them into the age to come forever. Why is it unpardonable? And I want to be clear some reasons that are not why it is unpardonable. It's certainly not because Christ's atoning death is of insufficient value to cover that sin. Like he's writing out the check and then he looks at his bank balance and he says, uh, you know, that one is too bad. Can't cover it. No, Christ is of infinite value, which means that if God willed, he could cover this sin. Again, I think it's useful to consider what Zacharias or Sinus says on this point. He points out, no, the reason why it is unpardonable is because the nature of this sin is that it is symptomatic of, it is a precursor to an irrecoverable hardening, after which a person never will repent. And without repentance, there is no salvation. Those who commit this sin afterwards simply will not repent. He says... It's called unpardonable, not because its greatness exceeds the value of Christ's merit, but because he who commits it is punished with total blindness and does not receive the gift of repentance. It is a sin of peculiarly aggravated nature and is therefore followed by a punishment in accordance with its character, which punishment is final blindness and impenitency. 
And where there is no repentance, there is no forgiveness obtained. Jesus pairs this in Matthew chapter 12 with these words. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or the age to come. And so these people show themselves outside the scope, humanly speaking, of salvation. I want you to turn with me and look at one other passage, Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews 6, beginning at verse 4. Which I think underscores the judgment, the hardening that comes upon those who commit this sin. For it is impossible, in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away, to restore them again to repentance. Since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed and its end is to be burned. He's describing people who have sat under the blessed reign of the gospel and have all the conditions in which they should bring forth fruit. And yet they do not. And they sit there and they sit there and seasons pass and seasons pass and the land proves that it was of no good. And they are near to being cursed. And Paul says, such people as have received all the light there can be and yet persist in unbelief, if they then walk out of this, there is no recovery. Now, again, it is possible for someone to sit and be present and not be illumined. They just didn't even listen. But the warning here is to those who have been convicted by the Holy Spirit that in the hour while they have such conviction, that's the time to repent. And so what do we do with this knowledge? What is Christ calling us to? And this brings us to our final question here. How do we respond? Obviously, obviously, This lesson does no good to the people who have actually committed this sin. It's not directed at them. They wouldn't heed it anyway. And so it's not talking to those people. It's talking to you. It's talking to me. Jesus is saying this in the presence of all of his disciples for their benefit. And the point of what he's saying, it's layered. In the first place, it's a warning to any who have not genuinely turn to Christ as their Lord and Savior. To everyone who feels any conviction and concern for your soul, this is the hour, this is the day of salvation. And the glory of this is that the Lord shows you the door and he shows you his pierced hand and he says, come in. If you desire grace, there's plenty. You are here in the hour of conviction and need Receive it. And how do you do that? Simply by believing upon Christ to be sufficient and asking him, Lord, because you're gracious, do in me everything necessary to my salvation. Take him up on the promise of the gospel. Don't stand outside. 
If you are convinced of his conviction, don't stifle it. The judgment is real. God works through means. Woe to the one who is the means of their own hardening, such that the day comes when they won't even listen to any of it. They become enemies against the church. They speak against the truth. On the other hand, I do want to address those who fear that perhaps you've committed this sin. And I do want to assure you, if you have concern for your soul, if any part of your heart desires Christ receive glory, you have not committed this sin. There is hope for you. And hear what it says, again, Hebrews chapter 6, verse 9 and following, because the writer of Hebrews knows that what he said will stir up concern, as it should. But then hear what he says, verses 9 and following. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown in his name in serving the saints, as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end. So he's, he knows he's speaking to people who do not yet have full assurance of the faith. And he's saying, look, God isn't going to forget that he began a good work in you. You have loved the saints. You have yearned for his glory. You have acknowledged your sin. Keep going and strive for the full assurance of the faith. Now, where does it come from? He says, look with me in verse 12, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since God had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. And was that the last day that Abraham ever sinned? No. But God made a promise in his own name, I will bless you. I will multiply you. I will bring about salvation. One of your descendants is going to redeem you. Even me come in the flesh. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of his promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. Refuge. Not build yourself a castle of your own good works. Refuge. In the promise, in Jesus Christ. We have this as a sure, steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, that is willing to go into the nearest presence of a righteous God among whom the angels hide their face for his glory. Such a hope as you have in Jesus Christ can go even there, where Jesus has gone as our forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. What on earth does that even mean? It means simply this. Christ, as our priest, goes into God's presence, bearing not some earthly sacrifice, not some animal, but bearing his own blood of infinite value. And he says, over these who I welcome now, see my blood. Receive them. And the Father says, that's why I sent you. I receive you. To the person who has fear, take your refuge in Christ. The person who has committed the blasphemy against the Spirit sees Christ as only his enemy. 
But that's not based on the promises of God. That's based on a lie they tell themselves. Choose this day what you will believe. Christ or your flesh. To those who have believed, I urge you, celebrate. We often wait until a special holiday to celebrate. This is a day of celebration as well. Were you more deserving than the scribes? God has spared you and he's brought you into the most infinite hope of everlasting righteousness. And the best things you have in this life, the most wonderful memories, those are just a foretaste in his providence that he gave you to show you a little glimpse of the good things he has in the age to come. All of this comes as his gift. Receive it with gratitude. Pray for others to be spared and to experience your blessing. Let's ask him to do that even now. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for giving us kind warnings in scripture, calling us back perhaps this day from the brink of suppressing the conviction of the spirit. We pray for salvation, not only for ourselves, but we pray especially for those who hear the word who have not yet been converted. We thank you for giving us a part in such a ministry as to pray for them, to intercede for them, to bear witness through our worship concerning the truth. We ask not only for those here, but for those who watch online, for your people spread throughout the whole world, that you would please work your mission. Help us, Lord, to honor you in every moment and to not grieve the spirit who so kindly dwells in us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.